Let's start off this segment with a little U.S. history quiz, shall we? Question number one. Which famous founding document includes the three unalienable human rights, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness? If you said the Mayflower Compact, you are wrong. It's the Declaration of Independence. I will follow up with a second question in a minute. What I find pretty neat about the Declaration of Independence is how true to the scriptures many of its propositions are. For instance, this phrase, all men are created equal. Now that exact phrase is not in the Bible, but think back to the previous two sessions as we defined humanity using Psalm 8 and Genesis 1 and 2 along with many other scriptures. Is there any doubt based on the principles of God's word that all humans are created equal? There is no doubt in my mind. All humans are created equal. What about this phrase? That they, referring to all humans, are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And without getting too far into the exact intent of the author, I think on one level or another, we could all agree that life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, whatever that may look like for each person, are rights that all humans possess. We certainly would not agree with the opposite, that death, bondage, and the pursuit of misery are the rights of all humans. The reference to a creator is also scriptural, obviously. But of the three unalienable rights, I want to focus on the first, life. Life is a right for all humans. I hope we are all on the same page and we will actually pick up next session with that very topic. Namely, when does life begin and when does life end? Alright, question number two. Several years after the Declaration of Independence, another document, a governing document, was drafted called the Constitution of the United States. Over time, various legislative and judicial bodies discerned deficiencies in the original Constitution, and so they adopted changes or amendments <coughs> into the Constitution over time. What were these changes called? Yes, they are called the Amendments. I tried to help you out by putting the answer within the question, so I hope you all got that one right. Now, one particular amendment has proven to be most controversial with regards to topics such as the one we are studying, namely humanity and the rights of humans. The Declaration states that life is a right of humans, and this controversial amendment, the 14th Amendment, uh, states this, and it states this in part. No state shall make or enforce any law which shall abridge the privileges or immunities of citizens of the United States, nor shall any state deprive any person of life without due process of law, nor deny to any person within its jurisdiction the equal protection of the laws. So the 14th Amendment clearly protects human life. But where the 14th Amendment fails miserably is that it never defines what a human is, nor does it define what life is. And I say that tongue-in-cheek as if the authors and approvers of the 14th Amendment made a grave mistake. In actuality, they did not make a mistake, but as time went on and secular thinking increased, or decreased, the natures and definitions of life and humanity became a lot more fluid. 
The purpose of this session is simply to give a bird's eye overview of an approach to humanity referred to as many things, but I will just reference it here as secular morality. And speaking of birds, if you hear uh, birds singing in the background, my window is open because it's a beautiful day. So I don't apologize for that. Please enjoy the background noise. Now, what is at the heart of secular morality is a divide between the human life, the physical life, the body, and the personhood of that being. And let me just say up front that this attempt to separate the personhood from the human life or the physical body is at the heart of the various issues that we face every day revolving around life and sexuality. In fact, when we get into uh, when human life begins and ends in our next session and discuss issues like abortion, euthanasia, mercy killing, uh, assisted suicide, you will see how this secular morality model can moralize the taking of what the Bible calls human life. You will see how when we substitute the objective truth of God's word for the subjectivity of man's reasoning, we can easily justify all manner of sexual perversions and even killing. Let me add a disclaimer up front. There is a lot going on behind the scenes as to where all this thinking came from. Okay, Darwin's theory of evolution and related theories play into this, as does a lot of secular philosophy from well before the time of Darwin. I will not be able to trace secular morality throughout the totality of history and lay out all its implications. That's just not possible. A lot of the information and data that I will be referencing can be found in Nancy Piercy's book, Love Thy Body. I do not intend to reference her conclusions uh, as much as I do intend to reference the works and understandings of secular moralists that she has compiled. In so doing, we will acquire a really good understanding of this secular approach to life and humanity. At least I hope we do. And if not, come and find me afterwards and we can talk more in person. In the world of academia, there exists a concept called the fact-value split. The fact-value split views reality or the, the concept of truth into two separate but coexisting realms, the realm of fact and the realm of value. And how these two realms have often been portrayed are as the upper and lower levels of a two-level house. On the lower level, we have the realm of fact, and on the upper level, we have this realm of value. So let's fill in the blanks on these two levels. What would we expect to find in the lower level of fact? Well, we could expect to find objectivity, facts themselves, observable science, uh, things that are valid for everyone. And let me just pause for a moment and make something clear. All science related to life and creation is God's science. Okay, As creator of all things material and observable, the sciences that sustain and that reproduce life and that govern our days and our seasons, this is all God's science. And what atheist scientists have done and are actually very effective at doing is they weaponeer creation science against God. 
you might ask, well, how do you weaponeer God's science against God? How do you weaponeer truth against the God of truth? Well, we can do the same thing with the truth of the Bible. We can use verses out of context to manipulate people to a certain conclusion, to build our own view of something using God's word out of context. All we have to do is build a context or argument counter to the Bible in some way and then somehow fit the Bible into our box and then we can use the Bible's truth to our evil advantage. So it's quite simple. And the secular atheist models of evolution and carbon dating methods have done just this. They have taken God's observable sciences and have manipulated the data for the purposes of presenting in earth that is millions of years old, just as one example. So that was all free. All that to say, the lower level of our two-story fact-value-split house is the fact aspect, objective, observable, scientific. The upper level of our house is values, things that are relativistic and subjective, things like theology and morality and feelings, things that cannot be seen, uh, values, things you cannot place within a science laboratory and boil down to an equation or a letter on the periodic table. Uh, these are the sorts of things that compose the upper level of our fact value house. These are the values. And this is where we as Bible believers are going to disagree with the secular morality camp. We have no issue with the unified concept of truth that says theology and science are 100% compatible. We believe the observable and unobservable coexist perfectly. We believe that God, who is spirit, uh, created a physical, observable creation. We believe that we as humans, though physical, are also spiritual and worship God in our bodies, though we worship in spirit and in truth. Through reading passages like Psalm 139, which we will get to more in the next session, uh, and Psalm 8, and Genesis 1 and 2, and many other passages, we understand that we as humans are both material and immaterial, and that makes up who we are as a human. We are not just physical, and we are not definitely uh, just immaterial or spiritual, but the total person of a human is both material and immaterial, and inseparably so. Now, let me bring this one step farther and show you how the fact-value split has been carried over into the realm of humanity, and therefore how it directly affects our question, what is a human? And this is where we venture into the more technical side of things, but I'm convinced that once you understand how secular morality has shaped the fact-value split in the realm of humanity, you will very quickly and clearly be able to see how this godless system of thought is able to justify abortion, is able to justify euthanasia, is able to justify a young man changing his identified gender from male to female. What I'm going to do now is read a paragraph from Dr. Piercy's book, which is going to help us bridge this fact-value split into the concept of a body-person split. She does a really nice job showing how hundreds, even thousands of years of godless thought and secular reasoning and philosophy have culminated more recently into the human morality and sexuality issues that we are bombarded with daily. 
especially since the 1960s and 70s when the Supreme Court legalized abortion and the homosexual movement became much more accepted and publicized in this country. And that was a super big run-on sentence. I apologize. But again, listen to how Dr. Piercy shows how the fact-value split relates directly to a body-person split, and then we'll address some ramifications. Dr. Piercy says, quote, Because philosophy is so foundational, this, defi- this divide affects every other subject area, including morality. In moral questions, we are asking, what is the right way to treat people? Our answer depends on what we think people are, on what it means to be human. The key to understanding all the controversial issues of our day is that the concept of the human being has likewise been fragmented into an upper and lower story. Secular thought today assumes a body-person split, with the body defined in the fact realm by empirical science, the lower story, and the person defined in the values realm as the basis for rights, the upper story. This dualism has created a fractured, fragmented view of the human being, in which the body is treated separate from the authentic self." End quote. Let me humbly offer a quick uh, summarizing commentary. When we can separate a human's material body from the person, or another way of saying this, when we can fragment the material from the immaterial, we can contrive whatever definition for life that we want. We can contrive whatever definition for humanity that we want. We can contrive any definition of marriage that we want. We can contrive any definition for gender that we want. Do you see where this is all going? If I was born with a male body, but later in life realized that my immaterial, my person, uh, my spiritual aspect is actually female. In other words, when I realized that I was born into the wrong body, I now have the right to pursue a sex change. That's my right. When humanity in any way is linked to my value in society, then my family has the right to euthanize me as soon as it is determined that my value to society has diminished beyond a designated point, whatever that arbitrary point may be. And the doctor who euthanizes me is absolved of any legal, moral, or ethical wrongdoing. If I do not inherit or develop my person my immaterial until I am three years old, just to throw out an arbitrary example, then I am purely physical and not yet a human until I am three. And I can be aborted for any reason. Church, this is where we are at when it comes to secular morality in our present society. When we define humanity differently, than the creator does, at best, the rules become subjective. At worst, they become non-existent. Hopefully, you're beginning to see why I chose the title I did for this series, What is a Human? And hopefully, you are seeing the profound importance of defining things the way the creator does. When we don't, 
like the world doesn't, there is no end to the perversions that will inevitably ensue. So, on that remarkably positive note, we are going to end there today. When we pick up with the next lesson, we will focus on the question, or the questions, when does life begin and when does life end? Which will have direct implications for the topics of abortion and euthanasia in particular. I am guessing after today's session, you are beginning to see the importance for believers to draw their truth from the Creator's world, word, the Bible, as opposed to any other so-called source of wisdom and understanding. Keep studying it. Find your answers for life in the Bible. And we will talk to you next time.